Well, we're in an El Nino year. Uh, you probably heard that on TV. If you don't know, that's uh, when the uh, warm current in the Pacific changes the weather pattern along the west coast here. And so what typically happens, of course, is uh, we get a little less rain, a little warmer uh, winter and spring. Uh, California, on the other hand, and Point south, they get a whole lot more rain and a lot more cold weather. That's going on right now. So we, we've come to know the term El Nino. It comes across every once in a while, and we, uh, we just have to live with it. Well, when I was living in the Bay Area in California, it turned out there was a guy living down there whose name was, guess what, El Nino. El Nino. And El Nino, whose name was published in the phone book, during the El Nino years, would get phone calls. Most of them, he said, were people just joking around. But he said a couple of times he actually got people threatening him and were hostile and were wondering what he was doing with the weather. <laughs> but he said everywhere he went, you know, anytime he had to pull out his driver's license or sign a form or whatever, somebody would make a joke about it. But he said he just got used to it. He figured it's something he just had to put up with it for a season and most of it would taper off. And he just kind of good-naturedly went along with it. He said it's a little irritating, but, you know, you find ways to deal with little irritations. And so he had a good sense of humor about it. You know, as believers, uh, we're, we're like everyone else. We have the irritations in our life that we have to put up with. But you know what? There are some special things that are more intense than irritations that come our way. And there's something we have to deal with as believers. And it's not just that we have to put up with it, but it's actually an extremely important something for our relationship with God. We're going to learn about it today as we continue our Essentials of the Walk, our Walk with God, our Essentials of the Walk series. We began this, we, we uh, mentioned, you know, as we think about growing in spiritual maturity, becoming more Christ-like, becoming a better servant of Christ, dealing with particular issues in our life, we have good goals, we are well-meaning, we even put effort into it, but sometimes we fall short of making progress. And the, the reason isn't that we haven't made the effort or we weren't serious, but that we're trying to deal with the peripheral issues when we really haven't dealt with the heart of our relationship with God. And whether we are really walking closely to God, whether we have the essentials of that walk in place that allow us then to move on and actually see progress in these other areas. So we're taking time to look at the essentials. And so far as we've, uh, as we've been studying, we started with really one of the key essentials, and that's faith. Faith. We learned about faith. Not just faith in Jesus for forgiveness of sin, but realizing that faith is something we have to apply every day of our life in every situation. That's an essential of the faith. We must, uh, uh, of our faith with Jesus, we must live by faith. We also learned about surrender last week, that that is an essential of the faith. That coming into a relationship with Jesus means we yield up our whole life to Him. We surrender our life, but then that has to carry over into everyday life, that we are surrendering ourselves daily to Him, and that means that we need to surrender up to Him anything that's blocking our relationship with Him. Any sin, any distraction, any job, any career, any hobby, whatever it is, if it's a block, if it's distracting us from that relationship with God, then we have to surrender that up to Him. So surrender is a key essential of our walk with God. Now today we're going to learn another one, very, very important. kind of goes along with surrender in some ways. We're going to find it in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. That's what we'll use for our jumping off point today as we look into the Scripture. Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 35 will be our starting point. We'll have the text up on the screen as usual. I use the New American Standard English translation. Your NIV, your New International will be very close to it. 
which you can follow along on the screen if you'd like to. I always love for us to open our Bibles because we need to be familiar in our own Bibles with where these passages are that we're studying, but we can go back to them when we need to. Here in this portion of Scripture, uh, Mark tells us of a special request which two of Jesus' twelve disciples made to Jesus and which they made not long after Jesus had told them something very, very important, very significant, even very sobering. Now, here's what Jesus said before they came and made this request. Okay, you can just find it on the screen here if you want. Jesus had told them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later, he will rise again. Well, who was Jesus talking about? He was talking about himself. He was the Son of Man. That was his title, one of his titles, the Son of Man. And Jesus was foretelling here of his death in Jerusalem by crucifixion. And we know that he had done this with the the disciples at least a couple of times previously. Uh, Apparently not in a lot of detail, but he had mentioned it to them at least twice previously and a third time had alluded to it in another situation. Here he's very straightforward. He speaks it very clearly. We don't know what more he might have said, but even if he just said this... He made it very clear, when we go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be tortured, I'm going to be put to death on a cross. Jesus foretold that. Well, not long after that, we're told, and here's where we begin in verse 35. Not long after that, here come two of the twelve disciples. And here's, Here's what we read. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher... We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Think about that. Who has the audacity to come to Jesus and say that? Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. You know who says that? We do sometimes. We just don't put it in those words, do we? When we want something really, really badly, that's sometimes the attitude, if not the words, in which we pray. God, I've got a request. I really, really, really want it. But, you know, a lot of times we don't verbalize it in the way that these guys did. You think about it. Who would come up to Jesus, especially knowing who Jesus is, and just say that? And and why would disciples do this? Who would you expect to do this? Well, of all the disciples, you would expect James and John, these two disciples, to do exactly exactly what they did. They were uh, uh, aggressive men. They were uh, type A personalities. They were take-charge kind of guys. Do you remember the nickname that Jesus gave these two brothers? Sons of Thunder. Yeah. Sons of Thunder. Now, that tells you their personality right now. They were not shy uh, types of men at all. Uh, Most of the time, Jesus had to rein these guys in. And uh, the more they became comfortable as disciples, the more bold they became uh, with their words and their deeds. And sometimes it showed a lot of immaturity rather than, than a lot of maturity. And sometimes it wasn't very helpful. One time we read that, uh, that they were out and they saw someone who was ministering in the name of Jesus, actually casting out demons and evidently having a ministry going on. And they went up and told the guy to stop. And they came back and bragged to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, there was somebody out there ministering in your name. We told them to stop because they weren't one of us. And Jesus had to rein him in and say, Whoa, you're crossing the line here. You don't go do that kind of thing. You didn't know. That's not right. I never told you to do that. It was another time we're told that when Jesus was rejected by a group of people and treated very badly, 
that these two sons of thunder came to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, why don't we just call down fire from heaven and just destroy them right now? That was their personality. And so uh, Jesus, by the way, said no. So, so you, can, you can get the picture. I mean, if anybody's going to come to Jesus this boldly, it's going to be these two guys. And Jesus, Jesus loves them because of their personalities. He loves all the disciples who have different personalities. But for these guys, he loves their passion. He loves their energy. He loves their commitment to him, which is one reason why he didn't really rebuke them for starting off this conversation by saying, we want you to do whatever we ask. Jesus was not going to, to say yes to that. He doesn't agree to those requests ever, but he is always willing to listen. And so verse 36, he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Now, by in your glory, we know from the Gospel of Matthew clearly what they meant. We could probably take a guess at it, but Matthew clarifies. They meant in your soon-to-be-realized kingdom. When you take your throne, when you conquer your enemies and take your throne, and you establish the kingdom of God here on earth, that's where we want to be. We want to be on your right and on your left. James and John, you see, had come to believe what was true, that Jesus was the long-promised Messiah the anointed one from God that God had foretold centuries earlier who would come and establish his kingdom on earth. They wanted then positions of prominence in the kingdom. They wanted the most prominent positions. That's what they meant when they said, we want to sit one on your left, one on your right. We live in a democracy, so we don't see this kind of thing and have it in our minds pictured the way they did. But in a royal court where there was a king who was, had all the authority, in, a, in the royal court there would be chairs on either side of the throne. The king, of course, sat on the throne. But those who were his most prominent leaders, his, the, his servants who held the highest positions in his kingdom, they would sit on the, throne, on the chairs beside the throne. And the one immediately to the right or to the left, they would be the ones who had the highest positions of authority and power. In our uh, system, if you want to think of something, if you've ever watched the, the annual State of the Union address given by the President of the United States, there's always the President standing there at the podium delivering the State of the Union address. And behind uh, the President, you will always see what? The Vice President and the Speaker of the House of Representatives sitting behind there. And, and so that's our, our American picture. That's what they were saying. We want to be those guys who are right behind you, as close to you. We want to be the ones who have the most power. Now, to their credit, that showed their belief in Jesus and their faith and their commitment to Jesus. They they were sold out to Jesus. And you could say, you know, if they wanted to be ambitious about something, you can't fault them for wanting to be ambitious to serve with Jesus. I mean, they were declaring their allegiance to Jesus. And I think they were saying, Jesus, we want to go on the fast track of training. We know you've been training up disciples as leaders Well, we want to go on the track that that makes us the top leaders. We want to be with you at all time. We want to serve you forever. That's good. But we also know there were problems with their request. And foremost, uh, we know that that there was a problem. We read about it in uh, in what happens after this conversation, after these guys come to Jesus. We're not going to get into that today. But just suffice it to say that that what we learn afterward reveals that, that really... Um, that this request was a lot less about them serving God and helping others and a lot more about them just obtaining power and glory for themselves. Not that they didn't want to serve God and, and help others too, 
But mixed in with this was a real desire to be very powerful and to have a lot of recognition. And so this request revealed their, their self-centeredness. It revealed their lack of humility. It revealed that, that they didn't quite have the servant's heart they really needed to have. And it showed character-wise they really weren't qualified for the positions they were asking for. The second problem with their request was that it really uh, showed that they had a lack of understanding of Jesus and God's plan and what God was doing in the world at that time. And they really uh, did not have a, an understanding of how they fit into that. They didn't understand. They maybe were revealing here also a lack of willingness to understand. They were going off of their own expectations of what they thought would and should, what they wanted to have happen, not what was really going to happen. Remember, their expectation was the Messiah, he was on the scene, so what was going to happen? Well, he would start conquering the enemies. Then he would take over the government. Then he would start running his kingdom. Everything would would get well quickly. And he would do this immediately. They viewed, they had come to view Jesus, you know, they they got to know him as Messiah and he was kind of hard to figure out at first and he, he would never even declare at first, that he was the Messiah. They had trouble figuring that out. They, they finally concluded, oh, we know what Jesus is doing. He's just waiting for his moment. He's being strategic. And, uh, and so, at the right time, and they began to interpret going up to Jerusalem, the capital, at the right time then, well, Jesus is suddenly going to unveil himself as king. He's going to launch the revolution the, uh, the, uh, the battles will begin. They will be won. The kingdom will be established. Then we'll start working on fulfilling the dreams of the kingdom of God on earth. And they were really excited about that. But you know what? That was all just based on their, their expectations. Jesus had been, remember, teaching, and, teaching them and telling them that God had a different way, a different plan. From the very beginning, they recognized this isn't going like we thought it was going to go when the Messiah came. But even though they were beginning to recognize that, they, they just couldn't quite get it. And Jesus was telling them things like, I'm going up to Jerusalem. They're going to grab me. They're going to abuse me. They're going to kill me. And for them, they just they, they couldn't take it in. They, they either wouldn't listen to it or, or somehow just reinterpreted everything. What they didn't understand is that Jesus was telling them, you know, the Messiah first is going to come and die. He's going to come and die. Why is he going to die? Well, what Jesus was telling them and what they should have heard him say is Jesus was going to die to give his life a ransom for sinners, to pay the penalty for sinners who had sinned against God, to take the justice due sinners. He would take it on himself so that people could come back into a relationship with God, so that God could offer forgiveness. That's, that's what he was going to do first. And then once he did that, he, he began to make it clear that there would be a delay. There would be a delay. He was not in this round going to take the position of conqueror and judge. He wasn't just going to conquer the enemies and, and get on a throne and judge everybody and send everybody to hell who wasn't already with him. No, what was coming up, he said, was there's going to be a ministry of grace of the Messiah. There'll be a ministry of grace, an era of grace in which God withholds his judgment in which during that time the servants of God will help others to know about the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And that they too might come back into a relationship with Him. That people of of the whole world could come to know Him, would have that opportunity to know Him and to be saved by Him. And in this this time period, 
uh, between. The, the servants of God would, would be out as ministers of Jesus. Jesus had been revealing that to them. But because of their expectations and because of their spiritual immaturity and because of sometimes their just plain spiritual dullness, they, they just didn't pay attention. They thought Jesus was probably speaking figuratively. Oh, it's just hyperbole, you know? All that stuff about going to Jerusalem and, and dying and rising again on the third day. Oh, just figurative speech. No, we don't understand it, but don't worry about it. You get the reason for their disconnect here. You understand why they were so disconnected. Why Jesus could very seriously sit down and say, hey, we're on, a, we're on our way to Jerusalem where I'm going to die. And instead of them going, wow, whoa, what, what's that all about? They go, hey, Jesus, how about when the kingdom starts? What, what role can we have? Total disconnect with what's going on here. That's why Jesus <clears throat> went on to answer them in the way that he did. Verse 38, But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. By that, uh, Jesus meant, first of all, you're not understanding God's timing and his plan for the unfolding of the kingdom. And you especially, you don't even understand what your role is going to be as the kingdom begins to be launched. What Jesus was, was telling them is really this. You're confusing the inauguration, the beginning of the establishment of the kingdom with the consummation. And you guys are here at the front, and you're going to be part of what happens in the middle. But you don't understand your roles and your responsibilities and what this is all about. You don't know your duties and your destinies here. Jesus wanted them to understand. He knew that that really they were going to have a little trouble getting it. But he wanted them to understand, and so he began to, to redirect them here. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able, here he goes, verse 38, he says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? When we read about that, we we hear the words cup, we think Lord's Supper, right? We just drank the cup of the communion. We hear baptism, we think of water baptism, like I just announced we're having a water baptism coming up. It's not what Jesus was referring to here. Drinking a cup was a figure of speech that meant to fully undergo an experience. It was was an idiom that was used. And so to drink a cup would mean to fully experience something. And sometimes that would mean experiencing something really good. But most often, the term was used to experience something really bad. Do you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, before his arrest? And he was praying to God the Father and he was agonizing over going to the cross. He knew it was going to be extremely painful in many different ways. And he prays to God the Father, and he says, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Let this horrible experience pass. Of course, he ends it by saying, not as I will, but as you will. But that's what the drinking of the cup meant. Something very, very difficult. Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And similarly, with the word to be baptized, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? That that word literally, of course, means to immerse. That's just the literal meaning of the word baptized, to be immersed. Are you willing to be immersed in what I'm going to be immersed in? And here again, he's using this, this in a metaphorical way. The idea of being baptized in something meant to be hit by a flood, to be overwhelmed by something. A flood hits you. We kind of still use that, uh, that word baptism in that sort of way, even in our day, don't we? We say, that person was baptized with fire. What do you mean baptized with fire? 
Baptism's water, fire's fire. What does that mean? No, it's talking about overwhelmed by, the, by this terrible calamity or this terrible experience. And Jesus says, are you able to, to experience all of this that I'm going to experience? James and John say to him, we are able. We are able. They don't have a clue what they're talking about. Now, Jesus has been pretty literal with him. In his mind, he's starting off by, by saying, are you able to handle what's coming up at Jerusalem? Because at Jerusalem, he was going to face that intense opposition day by day, and it would culminate in his death. Well, they say, we're able. But they didn't understand what they were saying. They were thinking about some challenges coming ahead. They thought Jesus was talking about, well, it's going to be a big undertaking when we get that kingdom rolling. Oh, we're able. We're up to the job. We're willing to put in the extra hours and the time. We're willing to go into the training program. We can do it. And so Jesus says to them, verse 39, The cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Notice Jesus doesn't say, it won't be you. <laughs> he just says, I can't answer that question for you. I can't answer that because that's not mine to decide and it's not mine to announce. The, the, the placement of who has those positions, that's, that's not part of my mission. Within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, different roles are taken. That role belongs to God the Father, not me. So Jesus says, I don't even have a comment on that. I have no way to answer you on that. But he let them know, surely, as you've said, you are able, you are going to suffer. You're going to suffer because of your relationship with me, and you're going to suffer because of my mission and your involvement in it. And he implied you're going to suffer to a degree you can't even comprehend at this moment. And indeed, we know that's exactly what happened, by the way, not just in Jerusalem, but, but after that for James and John. You know, you read in the book of Acts that James was the very first of the apostles to be martyred, put to death for his faith. John, his brother, on the other hand, lived a very long life. He outlived all of the other apostles by years. But John's life was so full of, of persecution and trials that some people call him the living martyr. He was constantly uh, persecuted for his faith. He was sent into exile. He was banished. He died as a very lonely apostle who was still wrestling, trying by letter to write and Make sure the church was going the way Christ wanted it to go. They did indeed suffer. Why did Jesus bring all this up with James and John? Because he wanted to make sure they understood that discipleship, being a follower of Jesus, actually having a walk with God, that it involves suffering. Did you get that? That just being a disciple will involve suffering. That suffering is just a part of discipleship, and in fact, that it is an essential of a walk with God. That you're not going to have a close walk with God in this life on earth without suffering. Did you know that? Well, this is what Jesus was really driving home. He wasn't just saying it for this, these two guys. This applies to all disciples. Suffering is involved in discipleship. You can't walk with Jesus 
uh, in a successful way. You can't have a close walk with God without suffering. It is a part of discipleship. It's an essential. That's maybe not what you wanted to hear today. You woke up this morning thinking, I'm a little depressed. I'm a little discouraged. I'll go to church. I'll get some encouragement from God's Word. But now I hear this. But this is the reality. But there's actually encouragement even in this. That's why we need to think about it. What kind of suffering are we talking about here? Well, as far as the Scripture is concerned, it lets us know the potentials for each of us are physical suffering, mental suffering, emotional suffering, relational suffering. And you can break that down into different categories if you like and extend out the list, but I think you get the basic idea. It covers all kinds of suffering. That's all on the table when you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. So what, where does it come from? What's the, what, what makes it happen? How does this suffering come? It, what's the result? Or what's the cause of it? Well, first of all, we know this, that, that we suffer because we're still human beings. Christians are still humans, and God has never promised nor acted in any way to make Christians immune from suffering at all. Some believers think that, that, that really that's what God should be doing. They think they get mad at God because they're suffering or whatever. And they think, well, as a Christian, I shouldn't be suffering. But that's not the case. God never makes the promise. He's never done anything. So we have to go through the same experiences of human suffering that others do who live in this world along with us. That's just the way it is. But we also learn that Christians suffer for some particular reasons. And one of them is this, that Christians suffer as a result of ministering for God and answering God's call to service. Whether that's the ministry you do in your home or the ministry you do in your neighborhood or your school or your workplace or if you go to be a short-term missionary or a long-term missionary or whatever, if you go out to serve, if you take up serving and being a servant of Jesus Christ, then you will suffer. There will be some particular suffering that comes from that. Whenever Christians serve God, there are numerous ways in which they might experience suffering. Paul the Apostle uh, spoke about this in the, in the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul, remember, had the incredible privilege of being called by God and gifted by God to take the good news of Jesus Christ to places where the, the good news had never gone before. And he was so gifted and so called and, and God set him up so well in his ministry that he could go to a place where people had never heard about Jesus and he could tell them the good news and the Holy Spirit would work and people would respond and then he would plant a church there. He would start a church, the first church of Jesus Christ in that city or that region. And that church would grow and he would disciple the believers there and then they would start winning more and more people to Jesus Christ. Paul got that incredible privilege, but along with it, you know what? Came suffering. Just by serving. Just by serving came suffering. Listen, Paul puts a, a list uh, down in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And, and here's what he includes on the list. He says, here's what I've had to gone through just to do my ministry. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I've spent in the deep. He's out there in the ocean floating around. I've been on frequent journeys... That just means I had to travel and be away from home all the time. In dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship. I had to work hard always through many sleepless nights, 
in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, he says, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Leadership is always weighty. There's always a lot of responsibilities. It's just the internal stress alone was enough to kill me. Elsewhere, Paul wrote about the, the pain of lost and broken relationships. That was a result of him doing his ministry. He wrote about the, the pain of believers, fellow believers, turning away from God and giving up their faith, of those in ministry who deserted him. He had the, uh, told about the, the people who were close friends, who, who betrayed him, who turned their back on him of fellow Christian servants in ministry who became jealous of him and gossiped about him and all these things he went through and also talked about the anguish and the great frustration of putting his heart and soul into some things and and no matter what he did, there just wasn't any fruit in the ministry from it and it just goes on and on. That's what happens, you know, when you're in the service of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And again, it, it doesn't matter where it is. If it's your home or some country way over across on the other side of the world. I mean, just think about it. As a servant of Jesus Christ, if you determine to live for Him and to minister for Him in any way, you're already putting yourself out in a way that non-Christians don't. You're putting yourself on the line. You're putting your physical body. You're putting your mind. You're putting your energy. You're putting your material resources on the line to accomplish the ministry of God. And, and you'll run into to problem situations as you do that. If you haven't experienced it yet, you, you probably haven't done much in ministry yet, or, or you probably haven't been long in ministry, you will learn that just doing ministry can take it out of you. But the Bible also tells us another big reason why Christians suffer, and that's simply because they believe in Jesus and pursue Christ-like character. Just because we believe and we try to live like Christ and we seek to, uh, to follow his instructions, a number of people will not like that. There are some people who don't believe in God or Jesus and they will consider you as believers to be ignorant, uh, irrational, foolish, crazy, and fanatical. Maybe even dangerous. And in various ways then, some major, some minor, they will become hostile in attitude or action or both, towards you. Others who may or may not believe in Jesus may not have the same feeling about you. But because they're not followers of Jesus, but they run into followers of Jesus who believe in right and wrong, who believe some things are sin and some things aren't, who teach what the Bible says is sin and what isn't sin, who try to live by the standards of Scripture, they're offended by that. They're offended out of their ignorance, their own misunderstanding, their shame, their pride, or maybe just their outright rebellion against God. They're offended. They don't want to see or hear about sin and righteousness. They don't want you commenting on that. They don't even want your presence there because you irritate them. And so they find you intrusive and uncomfortable. And in some cases, that makes them angry. And in their anger, then, they will lash out. They will take a position opposed to you. They may even develop hostility towards you. All of these things, whether it's, it's that hostility or whether it's just the suffering of the difficulties of ministry, can all come back really to something the Bible calls spiritual warfare. 
spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now, we're not dealing with human issues here. The things that go on aren't merely human matters. But what's our struggle? Our struggle is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's talking here about the spiritual realm. And in the spiritual realm, there are spiritual beings. There are good spiritual beings. We tend to call them by the biblical word angels. But there are also not so good spiritual beings. We tend to call them by the name demons. And in that spiritual realm with that division, in the realm of darkness, in the realm of the, of the spiritual world that is dark, those forces join together. And they join together to attack the plans of God and the purposes of God and the people of God. Scripture says they do everything from blinding the minds of the unbelieving so that they, they do act irrationally toward God and toward Christians. They, do, they influence that, but they even go so far as to stir up opposition and hostility to God's ministries and God's people. The moment you become a follower of Christ, did you know this? The moment you become a follower of Christ, in the spiritual realm, a target was put on your back by the forces of darkness. And you enter into ceaseless warfare. You are part of a, of a war that's going on. And you are targeted in that war. And that, target, or that targeting means that you will face some real life attacks and some very, very difficult experiences. I can think about one uh, person who was on a staff uh, that I worked on in another church who, uh, you know, just everything was going so well and his teenage daughter uh, just got so off track from God. And alongside that, there came several people, but one in particular, an adult, who they were not even related to, who began to influence this teenage girl until she became outright, totally rebellious, ran away from home, was hiding out in this woman's house. And the course of what this did to this family over the time of trying to find her and then bring her back home and trying to... to, to uh, get her back to normal, it, it just about destroyed the family. In fact, at one point, he resigned from the staff, the church I was on, because he said, you know what? I'm in a place where I'm a pastor of caring and giving. And he says, I have no emotional energy left. I have nothing in the tank to give. I just have to take a little time off. The results of ministry. I've got another friend in ministry, the first person I ever worked with officially, uh, in ministry, in terms of, uh, of being on a staff. And he was at a church where unbelievably the most horrible thing happened. A person in his congregation who pretended to, to walk with God, who pretended to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, in secret they found out later he was not that way at all. And at one point, he lured a teenage girl into the church building when no one else was there, raped her, murdered her in the church building. When all this was discovered and it came out, it not only devastated the whole church, the community didn't want anything to do with that church anymore. My friend, the pastor there, was devastated and it just, just took him out of ministry as well for a while. Spiritual warfare, folks, it's there that the, the things happen. It's real. It's true. And here's what happens. See, there's this part of this that we, we haven't addressed specifically, but... But along with all of these attacks to tear us down, there comes in this, this something that brings us suffering. It's called persecution. That's the biblical word for it. The, the acts I just described to you, they were more sneaky 
But there are frontal attacks on you as a believer. Those frontal attacks are called persecution. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. Jesus said, Matthew 10, You will be hated by all because of My name. People everywhere will hate you. Jesus again, John chapter 10, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated Me before it hated you. Don't take it personally, Jesus said. It all comes back to Me. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. So if they persecuted Me, Jesus said, they will also persecute you. That's the reality. What form does that persecution take? Jesus said, you know what? It can start as simple as just antagonism within your own home, within your own family. Jesus warned the disciples, don't be surprised if you don't see division within your family because of me. Jesus said, from now on, five members in one household will be divided, uh, three against two and two against three. He said, you just have to expect this. Because when you bring Jesus into a home that's never had Jesus in it, some people are going to take offense. Jesus went on, they will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Jesus said, be ready. This is the kind of thing that happens. He went on to say in another place, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. That's the reality. We don't see that much in America, do we? But all you have to do is is read a little bit, listen to some missionaries, talk to some people, and you know that in other countries, just to become a Christian means not only will the culture turn against you, not only will the government turn against you, but there are people in your family who will immediately attempt to kill you. We know in America, just in the last few months, there was a a court case, and maybe you saw it, that there was a teenage girl who became a Christian. She ended up running away from home because she was convinced her parents of a different faith would murder her for her conversion to Christianity. Now, the court's been sorting that out, who is right, who is wrong. But that's just an example of the reality. These sorts of situations could potentially even happen where we live in a a much freer country that's much more diverse. The persecution can happen outside the family as well. That's what the Apostle Peter wrote about in the book of 1 Peter. He was dealing with a group of people who were living in a society that wasn't Christian. They became Christians. And you know what? When they became Christians, they actually became better citizens, better people. They were kinder to their neighbors and their friends and their family members. They did their jobs better because they were, they were living for Jesus. And you know what happened? They still got persecuted. They were still persecuted. And Peter speaks of them uh, and says, you know what? There are going to be times when you do what is right and you suffer for it. He said, this is the reality. You will do what is right and suffer for it. There will be times when you're suffering unjustly. You're going to be treated unfairly. And he spoke and said there will be times when as a result of your faith, you're harshly, harshly treated. That might involve discrimination. It might involve being denied your rights. It might mean that your employer cheats you or doesn't give you the promotion you deserve. It might mean that you face verbal abuse you might even get physical, uh, physically assaulted at some time. Jesus went on to warn. He said, you know what? In some cultures, you need to be aware that, that 
because of your relationship to Jesus, that, that there will be some who make false accusations against you. Jesus knew that that was going to happen to him. That's exactly what happened. He was falsely accused in front of a court of law. Jesus warned that will happen to you. He also warned, you know what? There could be anti-Christian laws passed. And so the court system, the legal system, will turn against you when that happens. Matthew chapter 17, Jesus said, Beware of men, for they will hand you over to courts and scourge you. They'll punish you for being a Christian. They'll whip you on your back for being a Christian. We could go on giving details, but I think we get the basic picture here, right? Persecution can take all kinds of forms. Some mild, some serious. Some minor, some major. You might lose your property. You might lose a job. You might lose a friendship. You might lose a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You might suffer a more serious personal attack. So how do you avoid that suffering? What's the way to avoid that? There must be a way for a Christian to avoid that, right? The Scripture says, no, you can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. It's unavoidable. Well, actually, you can avoid it, but here's the deal. You can't avoid it without denying your relationship with Jesus Christ. Without saying you're not a Christian or hiding that in some way. You can't avoid it without disobeying the commands of Jesus. Yeah, if you stop living like a Christian, you can avoid it. You can avoid it uh, uh, you can't avoid it without ceasing to be a servant. If you just want to drop out of ministry, that'll help. Because then you'll be out of sight and you won't be offending anyone. And, and so, yeah, you can avoid it that way. But all of that's going to distance you in your relationship with God. It's going to strain your relationship with God. It's going to interrupt your walk with God. Jesus, at another time, said very clearly, those who confess me before... Before men, I confess them before my Father. Those who don't confess me before men, I don't confess them before my Father. That's just the reality. So it, it comes down to a choice. If we're going to avoid this, then what's going to happen? Well, you're not going to have a strong relationship with God. And so when suffering comes, the only good and right response is to suffer willingly. Which doesn't, of course, mean that you go out and seek suffering, but it does mean if it comes your way inevitably... If it comes upon you as a follower, because, because you are a follower of Jesus, you just willingly take it. You willingly take it, just as Jesus did in his walk with God the Father and in the fulfillment of his mission. He took it. He's the example for you to follow. We've been watching the Olympics these last couple of weeks. Kind of fun to do that. If you remember the, the Olympic uh, oath involved in that? Uh, they, they, I don't know if it's the same as it used to be. They probably modified the wording. But, you know, before they start the Olympics, all the athletes take this oath. And I, I know for sure that it used to be in that, in that oath, these words exactly this way. I have prepared. I have followed the rules. I will not quit. Isn't that interesting? I will not quit. And essentially, that's what we have to do in terms of suffering. It's going to be there, but... My decision is I, I will not quit. I will willingly suffer. And that means, of course, I'm not going to compromise with the world. I'm not going to quit on God. You know something else it means? I'm not going to retaliate against those who cause me to suffer. Because you see, as Christians, it's tough to hold back on that. Especially we, we begin to rationalize. Well, they're treating me unfairly. They're not living like a Christian. They're evil. So I'm going to get back at them. I'm going to retaliate against them. But you know what? That's not an option either for us. We're told uh, that, uh, that Jesus very clearly 
laid this out. Put this on the screen for me, would you there? Where Jesus just said, uh, or where Peter says of Christ, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who what? He who what? Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. That is how we are to respond. We must endure that suffering even to that degree. We have to keep that heart of forgiveness. So how do we do it? How do we do it? Here's some of the things that the scriptures say. Here's some things that the scriptures tell us. First of all, the way you, you handle this is consider it normal. Consider it normal. Peter told uh, the believers in his day, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. They were saying, wait a minute, we've been living these good lives now. We're better people than we were before. What's going on here? Peter says, hey, don't be surprised. You're going to be persecuted. Not for doing bad, you're going to be persecuted for doing good. This is just normal, Peter said. That's exactly what Jesus was telling us in all those passages we read earlier when he said, just expect this to happen. In the the book of Acts, we read that the Apostle Paul, after he had started all these churches and and made all these, uh, helped all these people to become followers of Christ, that later on he went back to their churches again to help them grow and be strengthened. And it says that one of the things he did consistently there was that he told them through many tribulations, look at this, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Part of the Christian walk, he was saying, is, hey, this is just the reality. As a Christian, you you will be persecuted. You will have trouble. So accept it. And so here's where we start. Because you know what? If we say, you know what, this is normal, then we're on our way to being able to take it. We're on our way to being able to bear it. We can accept it more easily if we just recognize this is normal. This is normal. So keep this in mind. Maybe you want to... Take that uh, verse from Acts 14 and write it down on a card and stick it on your mirror or something. Hey, this is normal. Through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. But second of all, accept it as a calling. Accept your suffering as a calling from God. You could change that to accept it as a ministry from God. Peter, again, writing to those who were being treated unjustly and suffering because they were faithful, he said this to them. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. You've been called for this purpose. There's a purpose in this. This isn't some random act going on. This is, this is actually a plan of God. God has a purpose for you going through this suffering. Suffering isn't just a consequence of being a Christian. Oh, it's a consequence I have to suffer. No, whenever that happens, God is taking you into a special ministry for him. Paul said the same thing to the uh, to the uh, Christians in Thessalonica, the city of Thessalonica. They were bothered too because they they were living for Jesus and being good people, and they were still being being uh, persecuted. And he he said, "Listen, I'm sending Timothy to you to make sure you you're not disturbed by this. For you yourselves know," he said, because he, he goes on to say, "We talked about this earlier that we've been destined for this." This has always been part of God's plan that we would enter into this suffering. Experiences of suffering are, are, are part of what God has in mind for us. It's what he's doing. He's going to minister through us. So you see in Philippians 1, Paul writes, for, you to, for to you it has been granted. 
It's been given to you as a gift. Isn't that nice? You can know this today. To you, it's been given as a gift for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also suffer. See, I don't want that gift. God says, I know you don't want it, but it's actually it's better for you and it's better for others in the long run. See, what's the point of it? I don't see the point of a ministry of suffering. Well, here's, here's at least one, one angle on this that you need to know. God's love was made known through the suffering of Jesus for us. We would never have known the depth of God's love had Jesus not gone and died to the cross for us, even though he totally didn't deserve it. And that would have never happened. He would have never paid the penalty for our sins if he had not been willing to go through the suffering. Because he went through it, then a way of salvation was provided. And it works the same way with us. Now, we're not Jesus. We're not accomplishing what Jesus accomplished on on the cross. But we are accomplishing the ministry of Jesus. Whenever we, through patient suffering as servants of Jesus, endure the suffering, then guess what? People come to know about Jesus. They begin to see Jesus. They look at us and they say, I don't know why they're like that. Why do, they, why do they not retaliate? Why do they keep enduring? Why do they keep sacrificing? And they begin to know, well, that's what Jesus did, isn't it? They worship this person, Jesus. He did the same thing. And they begin to discover Jesus. And they begin to realize, hey, there's a reality of this person, Jesus. There's someone who's given them the reason and the power and the strength to endure this suffering. And they also are coming to know Jesus because who's going to go to those people? Who's going to be a witness to them? Who's going to go to those faraway third world countries where they persecute Christians to bring the good news if somebody doesn't sacrifice? And so we're called into this this ministry of suffering for a reason. God is going to use it for good. And when we accept it as a calling, as as having a purpose, then it becomes easier to bear. Instead of sitting around saying, God, why is this happening to me? Why are you being so bad to me? Why am I suffering? We're understanding God has a reason for this. We're following in the tracks of Jesus. We're helping people discover him and come into a personal relationship with him. That's why Paul said, for this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, people who are going to become Christians, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Why do I suffer? Because there's a good reason for it. There's a good reason for it. It's part of our ministry. Third of all, if you're struggling, make sure you recall the promises of God about your suffering. The promises of God. God makes promises to us about helping us. Jesus said, in particular, for instance, suppose you get arrested. You're going to be persecuted. But when they hand you over, Jesus said, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it's not you who speak, but it's the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Jesus said, listen, I know you worry whether you're going to be able to handle it, handle your suffering, especially when you reach those tense crisis points. Jesus said, don't worry, I'm with you. I'll supply you whatever you need. You need words to speak, I'll give it to you when the time comes. You need energy to keep going, I'll supply it to you. You need endurance to bear the pain, I'll help you. And so whenever we see that suffering coming, whenever it starts entering into our life, we just remember the promises of Jesus. John 16:33, he said, In the world you have tribulation. It's already there. It's yours. No question you're going to have it. But take courage. I have overcome the world. I'll be there. Don't worry. And then finally, the Scripture tells us this. Remember the rewards. The rewards that come from suffering willingly. 
God assures us that there are indeed indeed rewards. First Peter chapter two. If if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, then this finds favor with God. You can almost overlook that little phrase. This finds favor with God. But it's a powerful phrase. It comes actually from the Old Testament and then it's carried into the New Testament. What that means is that that God is really pleased with you. You know what the Bible teaches? When God is really pleased with you, He draws extra close to you and He blesses those whom He is pleased with. That's what you get. That's what you get. Our willingness to suffer results in present blessing. 1 Peter 4, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But it's not just the present reward. They're the rewards that are to come as well, the eternal rewards. Jesus said this, Matthew 5, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. How can I do that? For your reward in heaven is great. That's a promise. Your reward in heaven is great. You have eternal reward coming. First Peter chapter 4, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory you may result, uh, rejoice with exultation. You may be suffering now. You're going to get reward later. Blessings from God. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He didn't look at the immediate suffering. He looked at the results, the big picture, the difference it was going to make in lives of other people. The, the, the blessing of, of doing something, of being involved in something incredible on earth, but also the, the blessings of heaven that were to come. That's how we're to deal with it. A long time ago, I, I read about a family. Uh, they were a circus family. They grew up traveling around with the circuses, and, and they were aerialists. You know, they did all this stuff up in the air with trapezes and all these things. But, but this one family had this specialty. And the specialty was everything they did, like, you know, 50 feet above the ground, they would do it with their hair. And so they would attach themselves by their hair to various things, and they would, they would do these tricks with their hair. And uh, as, as they revealed in this story, this was incredibly painful. So they raised up their children from early on to, you know, just kept, kept like tying these things so that they would get used to the pain because the pain never goes away. And so, so they, they would raise up their kids to be able to endure the pain. And they would get to, they'd have to get to that level where they could actually do things like not only be swung around by their hair, but they would be attached and they would do these spinning tricks where, you know, these cables would spin them around and they would be spinning. And it was, it was very difficult. And they all admitted it was horrifying. And they said, even today, the pain is intense. I said, well, why do you do it? Well, it's part of who we are. It's what our family does. Aren't you glad you don't belong? <laughs> but, but here's the quote from one of them. She said, the spin is the hardest because it's like your weight doubles. But when you see the faces on the people, you forget the pain. The joy, a part of being part of something that people were in awe of, that, that they got entertainment, they enjoyed it, they, they, they reveled in that. Nobody else does what we do. And it's the same way for us, but at a much higher level and for a much greater purpose that we can, we can actually then take it because we can see the faces of the people who are coming to Jesus the difference that we're making. So here as we close it, we just have to bring this all home, right? What does this mean to you today? Does it mean maybe it's time you stop being a secret Christian in some area of your life? Does it mean that maybe 
maybe you go back into that place where you were treated so harshly and instead of saying, I'm bailing out, you're like, "Ah, I just realized I'm the only one God put in that place. That's where I belong. Is it not retaliating? Maybe that's an issue for you. The issue is you've been suffering, but your way of dealing with the suffering is a striking back and you realize today, you know what? That's not what I'm supposed to be doing. And you realize, you know, maybe you start putting all this together. Hey, maybe no wonder my walk with God hasn't been so close after all. My unwillingness to suffer, my my unwillingness to bear this. Maybe this is the reason why I'm not growing. Maybe this is affecting. Maybe this is one of the reasons why my relationships are so bad. What's it going to mean for you? What might you have to give up for this? What might you need to add in? Some of you know exactly today. You know you know exactly what you need to do. Well, this is the, the point in time to just say, okay, God, I've heard, and I'm scared. I don't like this. But I see the point, and I know the way, and I'm willing to do it. Let's stand together. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us so dearly. Thank you for caring for us. And yes, Lord, thank you for even inviting us into this ministry of suffering. As much as we don't want it, as much as we're not attracted to it, Lord, we see the importance. We understand it now. We understand what you're doing. We understand our role in this time. We understand our call. We understand what this means. Father, help us. Some of us know exactly today what we need to do to go forward and live this out. So please strengthen our courage. Help us to remember what your word has said, your promises. Father, bring us encouragement from others to do what we need to do. And Father, as we begin to step out, please, even early on, show us your presence with us so that we would would be strengthened in faith even more to step out and, and to represent you and to live the way you want us to live. Father, we thank you that as we as we bring this to you today and we go out of this place with a new perspective, the same perspective we keep is that no matter what, you're with us. That we have good reason to to be representing you and we have good reason to have total confidence in you. And so as we pray, Lord, hear our words even as we sing that we are totally committed to you and willing to take on even these difficult parts of the essential walk with you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.